1: Throughout history and up to modern times, we invite you to pull up a chair,
0: put in your earbuds and allow us to enlighten, educate and explore the real reasons why black African-Americans are so angry. Because until you know the whole history, it
1: isn't American history at all.
0: Hey, Courtney. Here we are, doing our thing again, looking into systemic racism in America's social institutions. Now, the
1: bombshell headlines this week made us change course. Yep, we have planned to do a second episode on systemic racism in healthcare, but Donald Trump's refusal to condemn white supremacy during the presidential debates got us thinking about the presidency and how systemic racism might rear its ugly head in that revered American institution.
0: And our listeners probably have guessed already, since systemic racism is what we talk about, we have ferreted out some interesting stories about our presidents.
1: Yes, the highest office of the land, the leader of the free world, the job that's only been held by 45 people in the history of the United States of America has had some good guys, some okay guys, and some downright bad guys in that Oval Office. So,
0: Courtney, exactly what did Donald Trump say or not say during the debates?
1: well his exact word was sure when asked to condemn white supremacy by both the moderator chris wallace and uh vice president and democratic nominee joe biden it got really twisted really convoluted there were some messages exchanged we don't know what the president actually meant or who he was speaking to but at the end it all came out that he did not we don't know what he was trying to say when it came to white supremacy it just came out as a big ball of confusion. Now, he did have several very clear and concise comments about racial insensitivity training, stating that he felt that it was un American and teaches people to hate America. And he didn't like the role reversals that it put people into. So I'm wondering whose role did he not like to be reversed into?
0: Hmm. Well, that's all pretty interesting. I guess the president didn't express himself well during the debates as it relates to um, white supremacy. But I understand that since that time, Donald Trump has made a statement condemning all white supremacist groups. And as of this recording, he's hospitalized after testing positive for coronavirus. Now, what our listeners need to know is there is a long history of racist thinking and behavior by American presidents that has actually upheld systemic racism in American institutions.
1: Very true. We can go back as far as President George Washington, who held 317 slaves from George Washington to Donald Trump. In that fabric of the presidency, racism and systemic racism is weaved in very tight. You're right,
0: you're right. Now, speaking of our first president, George Washington, let's play a little true-false involving the presidents. True or false? 18 presidents, including Ulysses S.
1: Grant, were slaveholders. True. Here's a roll call of slaveholding presidents. We can start with Washington, Jefferson, Madison, Monroe, Jackson, Van Buren, Harrison, Tyler, Polk, Taylor, Johnson, and Grant. These 18 presidents held a total of 1,558 people in bondage. Did you know that George Washington actively tried to recapture one of his slaves by the name of Ona Judge, who lived out her life in New Hampshire almost until the day he died?
0: Wow, he was pretty persistent trying to get her back. Well, let's, let's bring it up to the present, and then we're going to jump back to the, uh, to the past in a minute. Recently, in July 2020, Vice President Joe Biden called Donald Trump America's first racist president, but you and I believe that Vice President Biden actually got his facts a little wrong, at least based on some of the books and articles we've been reading.
1: Exactly. Trump is not the first by any means. I think it's a bit more shocking to hear some of the things he says, some of the sound bites, some of the things that you hear coming out of circles that either support or uh, he is in. It's shocking because it's the 21st century. But if we're going to count racism or systemic racism in the presidency, Donald Trump is not alone at all. Yeah, you're right. In a 2016
0: article titled The 11 Most Racist U.S. Presidents, Ibram X. Kendi described situations in which presidents showed blatant racist behaviors and actions that actually furthered systemic racism.
1: Only 11? Well, even though George W. Bush, Calvin Coolidge, Dwight Eisenhower, Woodrow Wilson, and Franklin Roosevelt made the list, let's talk about the worst offenders, starting with number five, Thomas Jefferson. Kendi pointed out that even though he wrote the immortal words, all men are created equal, women and enslaved people were nowhere on his mind when he wrote those words. Not at all. Not at all. During his time,
0: Jefferson was considered the authority on black inferiority. His racist comments include and I quote, the blacks are inferior to the whites in endowments both of body and mind. And he went on to say that blacks are cursed with quote, a very strong and disagreeable old odor, and they were incapable of producing art and society. The fact that he produced offspring with the enslaved woman Sally Hemmons going goes without saying guess that smell didn't bother him. Uh, in fact, he once told a friend, "I consider a woman who brings a child into every, uh, brings a child every two years, as more profitable than the best man on the farm." He figured women women could help him financially. Now, his best-selling book, Notes on the State of Virginia, became a powerful tool for rationalizing slavery after the American Revolution, and he offered the most popular race relations solution of the 19th century, which was freeing civilizing and colonizing of all blacks back to what he called barbaric Africa.
1: Oh wow Thomas Jefferson those comments about poetry uh, lead me to believe he would not be a fan of his role in Hamilton. No. Number four is our fifth president James Monroe, when he was candidate for president, when Monroe supported the American Colonization Society, the job of this organization was, in the words of Henry Clay, ridding our country of the useless, pernicious, if not dangerous population, and redeeming Africa from ignorance and barbarism. (laughs) Wow. By 1821, President Monroe authorized seizing a strip of coastal West African land that became the first American colony in Africa called Liberia, which was made up of free and formerly enslaved people. Its capital, Monrovia, was named after him.
0: And don't forget the famous Monroe Doctrine that several U.S. presidents used for rationalizing U.S. intervention into sovereign Latin American states, including the toppling of governments unfriendly
1: to the U.S. interests. Hmm, that's a little shady. Very now, shady. Now, Ronald Reagan came in as number three on Kendi's list. In 1982, President Reagan announced his war on drugs. Oddly, though, the use of drugs was declining in America. In 1986, Reagan said we must mobilize all our forces to stop the flow of drugs in this country. Now, mysteriously, a lot of those drugs found their way into black and brown neighborhoods.
0: Hmm. So the war on drugs was only a war in name, I suppose. That fall, he signed the Anti-Drug Abuse Act, which established minimum sentencing for drug crimes, which led to the mass incarceration of black and brown drug offenders over the next few decades. Now we talked about that in one of our uh, podcasts and now we know the origins of that mass incarceration. Now white drug offenders who consume consumed and dealt drugs at similar or greater
1: rates, they remain for the most part free. And another thing that went along with that, that policy is that it changed the drug cocaine and crack cocaine into two different drugs crack cocaine was used in black and brown neighborhoods while cocaine was used in mainly white affluent neighborhoods they're the same drug but had two different sentences Um, mainly the higher sentences were for crack cocaine in those black neighborhoods oh boy systemic racism even in this instance Exactly. Now, care before we go any further, I want to tell a story. And I promise there is no trigger warning. Everyone can listen. But (laughs) this is about a president that did not make Kendi's top 11 list, but I think he should have. Oh, boy. I think I know who you're talking about. Is Is it who I think it is? I think I, we're on the same page here. It's none other than Rutherford B. Hayes. His contemporaries called him his great fraudulency, 19th president of the United States. You are absolutely right. It is Rutherford B. Hayes. Oh, okay, I
0: am all ears.
1: What's the story? Okay, so I'm going to do a little bit of clarity for our younger listeners, and it's something that caught me up as well. Republicans and Democrats during this time, Rutherford B. Hayes' time, were a little bit different. When you think Democrat now, you think Joe Biden Obama, and you think Republican, you think Trump and, and George W. Bush. Now, those roles were kind of reversed back then. Republicans were the party of Lincoln, and most, if not all, All African-American voters voted Republican. They were for Reconstruction, and the Democrats were from the South. They were the Confederates. They wanted to stop Reconstruction. They were not for the protections of newly freed Blacks. That is
0: so important, Courtney. Thanks for spelling that out, because not to understand kind of that role reversal of those, those parties might make this story a little confusing, I think.
1: It confused me when I was reading it. I had to flip that switch in my brain back to to 11th grade history, U.S. history class and remember. So keep that in mind. Republicans are for Reconstruction and Democrats are not.
0: Okay, so let me make sure this, I've got this right. Republicans at this time of history, they would have been the people on the side of Black African Americans.
1: Exactly. Okay, and Democrats would not have been. Exactly. You are on the right track. Okay. So the so the election of eighteen seventy six is one of the messiest, shadiest, craziest elections in American history. Now, depending upon when you're listening to this report. This podcast, we're recording it 29 days out from our 46th presidential election. And although people are speculating that this election is going to be one for the history books, I hope it does not come anything close to the election of Rutherford B. Hayes. This would be the first election that the winner of the popular vote did not win the election itself. And although it's happened three times since then, this is the first time it happens. This is what started the trend. And another fact, this would be the only presidential election where the person who won the popular vote won it by over 50% and still did not become president. Ooh, well, that oh I'll just have to listen
0: because this sounds pretty crazy. <laughs>
1: oh, it, it's it's a it's a doozy. Now this is the election that ended Reconstruction. It laid the groundwork and opened the door for Jim Crow to walk right in right into america and ripped through the south for a century the stories of systemic racism this election were the was the actual seeds that planted the topics that we talk about on this very podcast this one-term president his presidency there would be no podcast without without this actual uh, out this actual election Oh, so,
0: rutherford b hayes <laughs> rutherford
1: So what could he do? He was a Republican. He was for reconstruction. Well, let's paint a picture of America at that time. America in the 1870s was 20 years out from the Civil War. The country was in a major depression. People were losing jobs. They were homeless. And the people that they were looking to blame for all of this were newly freed Black African-Americans. They were voting for the first time. People thought they were inferior. They believed a lot of those ideals of Thomas Jefferson about black black African-Americans not being intelligent enough to vote or or anything like that and all the country's woes were put on black African-Americans and they felt the economy was being stretched thin because the government was sending so much money and union soldiers to the south to maintain reconstruction and keep black African-Americans safe
0: Hmm. okay so it doesn't well this sounds familiar but go ahead
1: now, the newly freed African-Americans were struggling to find their place as well. The 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment collective, amendments collectively freed them, gave men the right to vote, own property, and for equal protection under the law. But the civil uh, the, their civil rights were being violated still. And the Supreme Court were overturning convictions where large white mobs would attack Black people. They would say, well, we're kind of sort of protecting your rights but we don't know if it's individual violence state violence so we're just going to put our hands off so they technically were not being protected at all mm. now in the south on the upside however african americans with the help of radical republicans were changing the face of state and local governments in the south black people held up political office. They were voting in droves. They were educating themselves. They were building communities. And they were doing that hand in hand with the Republicans, who the Southern Southern Democrats called scallywags and carpetbaggers, to really build lives for themselves with the help of the federal government. So things were on the upswing. They were on the upswing, but there were also signs that if the union did leave, though that upswing would quickly go down mm, okay now at the time the republicans held the incumbency ulysses s grant was the president and he was a Republican and he toyed with the idea of running for a third term because back then you could still do that. But his, his presidency, both terms were filled with scandal and corruption and a whole lot of mess. So his party said, you know what, we'll vote for you, but the people don't like you. So do not run again. Now, their first choice was James Blaine, the senator from Maine, which I just love <laughs> saying his name
0: great slogan
1: great i'm james blaine the senator from maine but he did not get his party's votes he did not get enough votes so step in rutherford b hayes he was a civil war hero and veteran and the two-time governor of ohio and he was running on that valor i was a veteran i was a union soldier i supported lincoln remember how great we were during the civil war now, the Democratic nominee was Samuel Tillman. Now, he was from New York. He was not from down south. He was the governor of New York, but he was considered a bourbon Democrat and a classic liberal. And don't get liberal confused. It's another flip on the term. Not liberal as we think about it today, but a classic liberal, meaning liberty above all else. He was against carpetbag tyranny. He believed in hands-off federal government. He was anti-Asian immigration. He broke up Tammany Hall and put uh, William Tweed in jail in New York, which is a big deal. But what the Democrats saw was, okay, you hold the same ideas as us. You didn't like Lincoln when he was around. We can use you even though you're from up north because we all hold the same ideas. Okay, I can see why he would have been their candidate. He was their guy. Now, although Hayes and Tilden did agree on a lot of things, they were both pro-hard pro hard money, both very honest, both very anti-corruption, where they disagreed in what was the linchpin decision lynchpin discussion of this election was reconstruction and the pace on which it should end now hayes again in the republican believed in reconstruction and he had a slow and steady plan for the removal of troops but he knew that african americans needed to be protected in states especially don't just think he was doing this out of the kindness of his heart he wanted to make sure that republican ruled states in the south remained in power. Typical
0: politics, typical politics.
1: Yes, you want to serve your, your own interests. Now, Republicans did believe that African Americans' rights were in danger, and there needed to be a central government force to protect those people, especially in three particular states. And remember these states, Florida, Louisiana, and South Carolina. Those states will be important later now Tilden and the democrats were for ending reconstruction immediately it had been 20 years since the civil war it was over let it go let it die you know let state and local government handle state and local government business we don't need the federal government telling us what to do anymore sounds like states rights states rights exactly now during the race the election during the election race neither candidate did a lot of hardcore campaigning their constituents and supporters who did enough the republican slogan was not every democrat was a rebel but every rebel was a democrat Ooh, boy <laughs> that's kind of <laughs> spicy very <laughs> and the democrats accused the republicans of waving the bloody shirt and it pretty much if they had a song it would be let it go from frozen let go of the civil war it's we're not rebels anymore we're not confederates i thought you guys wanted a you you know a united country and you're just ripping us apart again so but the democrats on their side they had a few shady tricks up their sleeves now because groups uh paramilitary groups like the kkk were considered illegal groups called the red shirts and the white shirts formed they considered themselves the military arm of the Democratic Party. Wait a minute, a party having a
0: military arm?
1: Well, they couldn't call themselves the Klan, so this is what we have. Okay. Okay. Now, these gangs would do things just like the Klan, Uh, night raids, breaking up Black voter rallies, scaring people from going to the polls, and this plan had a name, and the name was called the Mississippi Plan, and it was a horrible, nasty plan. Now the Democrats also did something a little bit even worse. It was covert and it was very, very sad. Illiterate voters, especially African American uh, voters who were illiterate, were given a ballot with a picture of Abraham Lincoln. Now the Republicans were known as the party of Lincoln. So these illiterate voters would mark the picture of Abraham Lincoln. But no, 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 no. Nay, nay, I say that vote was actually a Democratic vote. And because the person couldn't read and only saw the picture of Abraham Lincoln, their vote was actually cast for Samuel Tilden.
0: My goodness, that's early voting, voter tampering, if anything. My, my.
1: Talk about voter fraud. It's, it's from there's nothing new under the sun. So the day of the election arrives and Tilden wins the popular vote. Hands down he wins 51%. But as we all know, it doesn't matter who really wins the popular vote, it comes down to the Electoral College. And when those votes were tallied, Hayes beat Tilden 185 votes to Tilden's 184. Now, upon hearing this news, the Democrats immediately contested the outcome. They wanted people to step in. They threatened a second civil war there were even chants that said children or blood filling the street so we are at a, we are at an impasse and the democrats are not happy
0: my my well courtney this is intense and another one of your cliffhangers so my heart is just beating and a break is in order after that we're going to hear how this all turns out Courtney, this story about the Hayes election is as suspenseful as the election between George W. Bush and Al Gore back in 2000. Now, there wasn't any bloodshed threatened, but remember that election ended up being decided by the Supreme Court. Looks like the Hayes election might put that one to shame, though. Well, before you finish, I want to remind our listeners, if they want to take a deeper dive into understanding systemic racism in America, they can go to our website, www.whyaretheysoangry.com for more information and take our, our course, Systemic Racism, See It, Say It, Confront It. And if you like our podcast, please subscribe, leave a comment, and consider giving us a five-star rating. So how did this election debacle wind up?
1: So, back to those votes. Tilden had won the popular vote by 300,000 votes. So, like I said, 51%, the first time this has ever happened. So, and, but, but, Hayes had the election by one electoral vote, which sounds kind of hinky. So the votes in question are from four states. Now the first one is kind of a swing state, it's Oregon, and I'll tell you the story of that because it is just so, so shady. The Democratic governor called out the postmaster general in Oregon and said, hey, you can't be an elector because you're the postmaster of the state, so get out of here. I'm going to put my own elector in. Well, his elector just so happened to be a Democrat who voted for Tilden. So the Republicans were like, well, wait a minute. What's the difference between the postmaster general and your guy? So that was more of a swing vote. But the votes that really really needed were needed were the 19 votes in the south so that was just a little petty story to just to wet your whistle so the south these southern states had three things in common they were republican run they had a biracial government they were constantly embroiled in in voter violence and black voter intimidation and lastly they were the last three states that had union troops now if you remember from the beginning of my story i said remember three states those states were four Florida, South Carolina, and Louisiana, and those were the states in question. These mm. states were so badly ripped apart, they turned in two different winners from two so-called state government <laughs> governments. So they were already embroiled in their own civil war. So between the infighting in the states, the turning in two different presidential winners, this had to be decided by Congress. But even Congress was split, the United States Congress. Senate was The Senate was held by the Democrats. The House was ran by the Republicans. So there was no impartial way to decide this. So in steps the actual president at the time.
0: Oh boy, oh boy, here we go. This gets really crazy.
1: (laughs) The Ulysses S. Grant says, I'm going to form an independent commission of five senators, five representatives, and five Supreme Court justices. And together, this is all going to work out. That's seven Republicans, seven Democrats, and one independent. Well, the independent was Supreme Court Justice David Davis, who ended up dropping out because uh, in a shady backdoor deal, the Democratic Senate seat of Illinois mysteriously came up empty and the people of the great state of Illinois said, hey, Dave, you want to be a senator or not? Nah? And oh. he said, oh, I do want to be a senator, but let me recuse myself from this independent uh electoral college or this electoral commission because it's not fair convenient
0: convenient
1: so we don't know what they were trying to actually we do know what they were trying to do but he would did the respectable thing and david davis took a step back now the republicans put up joseph bradley who was a supreme court justice but he was republican and he promised that whenever he would vote he would try to be as impartial as he could But every time they would have a vote for president, mysteriously, Hayes won every single time so hmm. the democrats said no way you put in this republican judge forgetting the fact that they tried to bribe david davis <laughs> but you put in this republican judge this is not fair and we're going to filibuster and nobody's going to be president and it's it's going to we're going to have another civil war you have to figure this out so there's violence in the streets rutherford b hayes goes home to ohio somebody shoots into his house they shoot the window out of yeah, they shoot the windows out of Rutherford, house, Rutherford B. Hayes' home while he's there. And the dates are just clicking down to the, uh, to the actual inauguration of the president.
0: Now, no. if I remember my history, the inauguration back then was a little later in the year, wasn't it like in February? Yes,
1: it was it was in March. It was in March. So uh-huh. two days before the election, all of a sudden, this commission pops up and says, Okay, fine, Hayes is president. We don't care. We're we're not mad anymore. Mm. Two days, 48 hours before the inauguration.
0: That sounds pretty fishy to me. What what kind of <laughs> double dealing happened?
1: It was a backdoor deal known as the Compromise of 1877, or the Great Betrayal. It would be something that would haunt Rutherford B. Hayes. It would cause him to be taunted in speeches. They called him his fraudulency. They called him the Great Fraud. It it haunted the man for the rest of his presidency. See, while the Electoral Commission was meeting and everybody knew what was going on, party leaders were meeting at the Wormley Hotel in Washington, D.C., up until 48 hours before the inauguration. And this was the compromise. If Hayes agreed to remove union troops, put a democrat in his administration, the democrats promised not to remove the protections for black voters. So Hayes made the deal. He shook he signed his name, shook the hand, he made a he put a democrat in his administration which would be the postmaster general conveniently. Conveniently, but the dem and he removed Union troops, but the but the Democrats did not make good on their promise. As soon as the Union troops were gone, it seemed like a, a light switch. Those biracial governments, those black voters making strides, all of that ended their protections under the the 14th and definitely the 13th amendment with mass incarceration and the 15th amendment seemed to be null and void it wouldn't be up until brown versus education that this would be challenged again
0: well as the old saying goes now we know the rest of the story the great betrayal is the perfect description for that election Black African Americans got the shaft once again, and the effect, as you've pointed out, has lasted up to the present. So that brings us back to Kendi's list of the top most racist U.S. presidents. Now, how Hayes didn't make it to this list, I'll never understand. But anyway, who is number two?
1: None other than our seventh president, Andrew Jackson. According to Kendi, he put together a winning coalition of Southern enslavers, white working people, and recent European immigrants who regularly rioted against abolitionists, indigenous people, and in Black communities, and civil rights activists.
0: Hmm, that coalition sounds familiar. Jackson also interfered with the U.S. Mail, another familiar scenario, think today. When abolitionists started doing mass mailings of anti-slavery tracts, Jackson called on Congress to pass a law prohibiting, quote, under severe penalties, the circulation of incendiary publications. Now, the next year, Jackson and his supporters instituted the infamous gag rule that effectively tabled all anti-slavery petitions that were starting to be rushed into Congress. And remember, too, Jackson's Indian Removal Act of 1830 that forced both Indigenous Native Americans and Black African Americans off their lands in the Trail of Tears.
1: Wow, and Carol, I didn't think it got much worse than Andrew Jackson, but drumroll please, the president making it to number one on Kendi's list of the most racist presidents in America is our 17th president, Andrew Johnson.
0: Yes, good old Andrew Johnson, first president to be impeached, has a litany of systemic racist acts to his credit, or should I say discredit.
1: Oh, Andrew. After Lincoln was assassinated, Johnson took office and quickly moved to undo reconstruction efforts. He offered amnesty, property rights, and voting rights to all to all but the highest confederate officials most of whom he pardoned a year later later he ordered the return of land to pardon confederates null and void wartime orders and granted blacks that granted blacks 40 acres and a mule and removed many of the black troops from the south
0: now, to rejoin the Union, southern states had to hold constitutional conventions where they wrote new con- uh, new constitutions. But what they did is because Johnson had emboldened them, they started to include in their constitution black codes. And those black codes basically were laws that pretty much re-enslaved black people. So the states that were created after the war started to look pretty much like the states looked before the war this time the laws took the place of the southern plantation master
1: johnson also vetoed the freedmen's bureau bill and the civil rights bill of 1866 so congress had to pass them over his veto in addition johnson opposed the 14th and 15th amendments Ooh. That's
0: quite a litany. That is quite a litany. And I can see why Andrew Johnson made it as number one. But again, I still wonder about Rutherford B. Hayes not getting on there. But I want to go back to the list to look at number six, Franklin D. Roosevelt. Now, although Roosevelt landed at number six on Kendi's list, and we chose to talk about the top five, So many of Roosevelt's New Deal policies had detrimental and devastating effects on Black African Americans to this very day. I
1: think we should talk about him, too. We definitely should talk about him, since he's the same president that gave the executive order in 1942 that resulted in the rounding up and forcing of more than 100,000 Japanese Americans into prisons during World War II.
0: That's the guy. Ironically, although America was at war with Germany and Italy, get this, no German or Italian Americans were sent to military prisons. But again, as bad as that was and is, I want to talk about his New Deal policies that had awful effects on Black African
1: Americans. Some of those policies included job benefits like minimum wage, social security, unemployment, and unionizing rights. All of those sound pretty good. They do. They do indeed. But unfortunately, farmers and
0: domestics, the jobs that most likely were held by Southern Blacks, they were excluded from those New Deal benefits. And what's worse, Southern segregationists insisted that all federal relief programs like these be locally administered. So you can imagine that few, if any, black African Americans got the benefits.
1: I can only imagine they didn't see any of that new deal. But don't forget, it was Roosevelt's Federal Housing Administration that promoted redlining and restrictive racial covenants, effectively cutting black African Americans off from the wealth generated by home ownership.
0: Yep, we talked about that in one of our podcasts. That's a very serious situation. It was also FDR's federal housing program that authorized the destruction of racially integrated federally subsidized housing and then building racially segregated federally subsidized housing.
1: Don't forget the GI Bill. Veterans who had served in World War II were supposed to get a host of benefits, including college tuition, low-cost home loans, and unemployment insurance.
0: Yep, yep, they were supposed to. But again, Black African Americans were blocked at every turn from capitalizing on these benefits, either by being prevented from buying homes in all-white neighborhoods, or denied home loans because of redlining,
1: or prevented from getting college tuition. Northern universities dragged their feet when it came to admitting black students, and southern colleges barred black students entirely. And the VA itself encouraged black veterans to apply for vocational training instead of college degrees and arbitrarily denied educational benefits to some students.
0: And many times those vocational trainings that they encouraged black African Americans to take, they weren't even available in the areas where the people lived. Now, the original GI Bill ended in July 1956, and by that time, nearly 8 million World War II veterans had received education or training, and 4.3 million home loans worth $33 billion, had been handed out. But for most Black African American veterans, the bill ended before it even began. That is heartbreaking. So we can see... That presidents behaving badly have a profound and negative effect on the populace.
1: So true. The numbers don't lie. Today, a stark wealth gap between white and black Americans persists. According to the U.S. Census, the median income for white households in 2017 was $68,145, while for black households, it was $40,258.
0: And that big gap. It's a direct result of FDR's New Deal policies impacting lives to this very day.
1: So, in Carol, that means only history will tell how Donald Trump's policies will impact Black African Americans in the future. But one thing is for sure, when systemically racist policies are at work, the results are usually pretty bleak.
0: Yes, they usually are. Well, Courtney, it's right about here in the program, we offer suggestions on how to confront systemic racism.
1: What's our suggestion this time? There's only one, vote. Vote in all elections. Make sure you're registered to vote. Don't be intimidated when people tell you you can't vote and vote. Well, that's it for today. Make sure that you reach out to us on Facebook at Why Are They So Angry, our website where you can find our course, Systemic Racism, See It, Say It, Confront It at www.whyaretheysoangry.com, Instagram at Why Are They So Angry, and Twitter at W-A-T-S-A underscore online. Well, I
0: hope we hear from all of our listeners. We'll get back to our series on systemic racism and healthcare when we convene next time.
1: Hope to see you and hear you all soon. That brings today's episode to a close. We hope you join us next time when we continue providing the answer to the question, why are they so angry? As always, we hope you learn something so you can see it, say it, and confront it.